Yesterday afternoon, as I was uh, working to finish this sermon, uh, Kate, my wife, comes to me and says, would you mind driving Ben, our 15-year-old son, would you mind driving him to the station? She was hurrying to get something finished and uh, she felt like she couldn't do it. Uh, I didn't have much time, but I thought, it's okay, it's a 10-minute trip. We jump in the car, off we go to Kalara Station. And um, to be honest with you, I, I was grumbling inwardly at this moment. Uh, I didn't feel like doing this, and I argued silently with myself, my sermon time is more important than whatever it is that Kate was doing, and I started grumbling, and I grumbled some more. And that's when Ben interrupts me as we're driving along, and he says, why are we going this way? Well, we always go this way when we're going to the station. Oh, we're not going to the station. I need to go to Macquarie Centre. <laughs> now, the smoke is starting to come out of my ears at this point. Um, and just at that, I noticed too at that, you know, in that split second where you realise the situation, um, a very holy Christian song was being played on, on, on my radio, on the car as well. And um, I bite my lip and I thought, this is the extra mile. Actually, it was 15 kilometres, but I was being forced to go. And um, then the little warning light popped up, I kid you not, you know. Uh, you need to, you're just about to run out of petrol. <laughs> you fill up the cup of petrol as well. And um, at that moment, I felt like a doormat. I felt used. I felt taken for granted. But I did it all without complaining, just so I could tell you about it this morning, you see. <laughs> the truth is, and the point of this story is, in my heart of hearts, at no stage did I ever want to do that simple act of service. My heart needs work. I still need to grow beyond my grumbling silence. And that's where Matthew chapter 5 takes us today. You see, the challenge of this passage is not what does it mean. The challenge of this passage is how can I even embrace what Jesus wants me to do, what he's calling me to do? You see, even when I want to obey what Jesus is teaching here, the challenge is to do it from my heart. Not reluctantly, but because, you know, I really want to. And one of the surprises, I think, of the Sermon on the Mount, as we have continued our blessed series, is the number of commands and laws that it has. And so uh, once we get into the body of uh, Jesus' sermons from uh, chapter 5, verse 17, all the way through to the end, verse 48 of chapter 5, Jesus has been talking about the Old Testament law. And the surprise kicks in when we really see that Jesus is not watering down or, or minimising the laws of Moses. Instead, he's actually been amplifying them intensifying them. And so there's this pattern that appears throughout chapter 5. It looks a little bit like this, where uh, repeatedly Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, uh, you shall not murder, but I tell you, and then he amplifies that law. And you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you. Uh, you've heard it said, anyone who divorces their wife must give them a certificate of divorce, but I tell you. You've heard it said to the people long ago, don't break your oath, but I tell you. And in today's passage, you might have noticed that that pattern continued. You've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I tell you. 
And then again, verse 43, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you. And so as Jesus works his way through the laws of Moses, in each case, he seems to intensify the law. It doesn't get easier to obey. It seems to get harder. Avoiding anger and abusive speech is much harder than avoiding murder. Avoiding lust is much harder than avoiding adultery. Loving my enemies is so much harder than loving my neighbour. Surrendering my rights is so much harder than extracting equal measured justice. So what are we supposed to do with this? What are we to make of Jesus' laws? They are more intense. They are a higher standard of righteousness than the law of Moses that was so beloved by the Pharisees. And if you've been with us through this series of talks, you've already heard the answer to this question. What are we to do with this? To grasp Jesus' laws, we first of all need to understand their purpose. The purpose of Jesus' commands in the Sermon on the Mount is to define the life of the kingdom of heaven. This is how to live now that we are welcomed into God's presence, now that we are his children and already saved. That, in fact, has always been the positive purpose of God's laws throughout the Old Testament. You remember, even in the Garden of Eden, God gave a simple food law to Adam and Eve. Don't eat the fruit from that tree. Now, Adam and Eve, at that time, the receipt of the first laws, they were on very good terms with God. Then again, later in the Bible, in Mount Sinai, after the people of Israel were saved out of Egypt and had been constituted as God's chosen people, they were on their way to the promised land. It's only then that God gives them his laws. Here is how to live when you get to the promised land, when you share company with me in my place. And so throughout the Bible, God gives his people laws because... They are already on right terms with him. And so too, Jesus here uh, says to his disciples who have been invited into the kingdom by grace, he commands them with these laws, this is how to live precisely because you are the children of God. You are already saved. And so here is how to live as God's children. So the purpose of these commands is actually made clear in verse 45. You might have a look at it in the text there. It's summed up again in verse 48. Verse uh, 44 and 45, Jesus says, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Why should we love our enemies? So that we may be children of our Father in heaven. That's actually a purpose clause that's there. So that we demonstrate the truth of this reality. Doing the deed of loving doesn't turn us into God's children. Instead, it demonstrates that we really are God's children. We bear his likeness. Do you know the expression, like father, like child? you've seen my youngest son you'll know what I mean we live this way we love our enemies we obey this command so that we may be children 
of our Father in heaven. That's the purpose of these laws. Jesus says something again, a little similar in verse 48 at the conclusion of this whole meditation of, uh, on the Old Testament law. He sums all of these commands up by saying, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What's the rationale for being perfect? Well, in this amplification of the Old Testament laws, by doing these things, you show that you are becoming, I might say, just like your heavenly Father. Because this is what your heavenly Father is like. Be perfect in this way. That is, in this way of living life in the kingdom, like father, like child. So our living life, as described by these laws, is primarily about making clear to those who see us that we are indeed the children of God. And right at this moment, we're at the heart of Christian ethics. Christian ethics, the practice of living in relationships in the world. Jesus' laws here give us a vision for life in the kingdom. They show us how to express our love for God in everyday life. They show us how to live in company with God. So the laws that we see here are indeed very important. They are how to live with God once we've been brought to him by grace. Well, very important for us to have that framework in our minds as we come to, to the Sermon on the Mount. We know why Jesus has so many commands here and so many laws. But let's sit with today's two commands just a little longer, if we may. We are ready now to learn about the lifestyle of living with Jesus. Verse 38 challenges our demands for justice. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile or seven kilometres, go with them 14 kilometres to Macquarie Centre and back. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, Jesus is reflecting back here on Leviticus 24 in Moses' law where it says, Anyone who injures their neighbour is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Now, this is the principle of justice with limits to retaliation. So if your uh, actions cause me to suffer loss, justice allows me to extract retribution only up to an equal amount. Might sound sort of a strange uh, kind of justice, uh, but in a world where there were no limits to retribution, it's actually a pretty good thing. I have a friend uh, who's a missionary in a very remote part of Papua New Guinea, and the system of payback in that place is extraordinary. Uh, he told me of a case where if, if you, for example, hurt my sister, that would mean that I was free to go and kill your brother. And uh, having killed your brother, then, you know, I, I would come back or you would come back and burn down my house and kill my whole family, which would then lead to my tribe killing your tribe. And so it would go. Payback. 
a constant cycle of escalation. There in that culture, there is no law limiting retaliation. And so this law of Moses in Leviticus was, a, was an advance, if you like, on payback. It was better because if you hurt my sister, justice limits me to only hurting you as much as you hurt my sister to the same extent. And the odd thing I find, actually, is that although we see ourselves as so sophisticated here in 21st century Roseville, that we actually want that standard of justice based on equal loss. That is, we think righteousness is when I make you suffer just as much as I have had to suffer. But no more. Jesus says here, no, no, in the kingdom of heaven, righteousness, the kind of life that is appropriate to live in the company of God, righteousness takes retribution out of the equation altogether. So in an extreme case, when some malicious person causes us harm, we don't demand payback. Instead, we offer them more of something that they wanted unfairly in the first place. If you ask for my shirt to keep you warm, well, I'll, I'll give you my coat as well, even though the law of Moses protected my coat. I don't have to give it to you under the law of Moses. If a Roman soldier forced you to walk a mile carrying their load, well, then you would freely walk two miles with that Roman soldier. This is not justice based on equal pain. Equal loss, equal consequences for all. This is not getting what you deserve. This is justice based on grace. And if the Christian person seems to come out the loser in this transaction, that's okay. That's Jesus' law in the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember... Entry into the kingdom of heaven is only ever by grace in the first place. God's undeserved kindness to us in Jesus Christ. And so it's no surprise that justice in the kingdom of heaven is also predicated on the ethic of grace to the undeserving. And if that first law this morning seems challenging, the second one is harder. Verse 43, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Once again, quoting the law of Moses, which Jesus knew and all of the crowd listening knew that God had commanded the people of Israel, love your neighbour. Now, Israel were never specifically commanded to hate their enemies, but it seemed perfectly a right thing, particularly in the mind of a Pharisee, that if you have to love your neighbour, well, you know, the other side of that coin must be that you hate anybody who's not your neighbour. That's how they'd come to that understanding. Well, Jesus says that's not how it is in the kingdom of heaven. Instead of hating our neighbour, sorry, instead of hating our enemy, we love them. Specifically, Jesus says, by praying for them. We pray for our enemies. We seek their highest good and their greatest blessing 
from one who can actually deliver upon that request. Now, this is different to praying about your enemies. Do you know, you know praying about your enemies, which is, you know, oh, Lord, smite my enemies with frogs and boils. That's praying about your enemies. This is praying for your enemies, for their good, literally on their behalf. Just as justice that is based around equal suffering for all is insufficient for the kingdom predicated on grace, so also loving those only who love you is insufficient. God shows his love to both the righteous and to the unrighteous. Both receive the benefit of the sunshine and the rainfall. So also the Christian, like father, like child, loves their neighbour and their enemy, even their persecutor. And this kind of love is the basis of Christian ethics, of how we do life together in the kingdom of God, even when it's complex. Earlier I suggested that The challenge of this passage is not really so much what does it mean. The challenge is how can I even embrace from my heart what Jesus is calling me to do here? It's the heart issue for us. I want to authentically love my enemy and give to the one who unfairly asks something of me, but my initial reaction just says no. And I grumble. I really do. In my heart of hearts, I'm saying I don't want to be a doormat. I don't want other people wiping their dirty feet on me. I don't want my rights violated. I don't want my dignity discredited. I don't want my personhood somehow diminished. So how will God even begin to work on my heart so that I want to embrace the life of the kingdom? envisioned by Jesus' teachings here. That's really the question for the day. And as a fellow traveller, I want to submit a couple of things before you and see if that for you will be helpful as a way forward. First of all, I think this kind of open heart surgery begins with our view of Jesus. When you consider Jesus... Do you ponder what he's actually done for you? Do you think on that? Can I recommend to us all that we slowly and deliberately take to heart Philippians 2 that was read for us this morning? Jesus, in very nature God, did not consider, something, did not consider equality with God something that he could use to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking in the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And he did this for you and I. He did this as our doormat. Our sin would be wiped all over him so that he would bear the consequences of it all. He would absorb the wrath of God that was due me and my sin. Do you know there is no higher being in the universe than Jesus Christ? He is worthy of all praise, 
All glory is rightly his. And yet he chose to make himself a doorman for sin, for my sin, for our sin. Do you know, I think most Christians understand that truth, at least, you know, to some extent. But my point is the point that Paul makes in verse 5 of Philippians 2, which introduces this ancient hymn about Jesus Christ. Why does Paul quote this hymn to the Philippians? Verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. God calls us to have the same mindset as Jesus Christ in our relationships with one another. And by slowly pondering, embracing the enormity of Jesus' grace towards us, our hearts can actually change. Paul reminds the Philippians of a hymn they likely already knew because he wanted them to think on it again, to dwell on it, to take it in, uh, because that's actually how our hearts are changed by the Holy Spirit's work. Uh, it's like preparing a good curry. We marinate ourselves over time in God's word until the flavour is absorbed into the very fibres of our soul. We start to taste like, you smell a little like Jesus. We have his same mindset and we practice it in our relationships with one another. So I want to suggest that the open heart surgery required to embrace Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount begins with careful reflection on what Jesus has done for you and I. In the kingdom that is governed by grace, apprehending the depth of his grace for us is actually the beginning of changing our own hearts. That's how we grow in the family likeness. When I think about Christians who seem to know a lot more about this than I do, I think of uh, Corrie ten Boom. She was a, a young Dutch woman who helped many Jews escaped the Nazi Holocaust during World War II. Uh, she was imprisoned for her actions. Ultimately, she ended up in the Ravensbrück uh, concentration camp where, miraculously, she was spared from the gas chambers. And after the war, Corrie ten Boom toured Europe preaching a, a gospel of love and forgiveness. And uh, I want to read you, uh, in closing today, uh, one of her reflections on an experience that she had uh, after the war. She writes, It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a grey overcoat and a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the centre of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrook concentration camp. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. And no, he didn't remember me. 
But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, his hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and I could not. My sister Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, his hand held out, but it seemed to me hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. I stood there with coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the heart's temperature. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Now, it's a powerful account of what can happen when we ask God to change us, isn't it? Jesus says the person who themselves has been forgiven little loves little. But the one who knows that they have been forgiven much loves much. And he's the one who gives us what we need in order to live the life of the kingdom. The challenge is whether we'll ask him for that. 